This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So as a preparation for, I know Meng is going to talk some about the path of practice, really, in, in several of the different stages, the elements of what makes up the path of practice. And I want to give um, some preparation that may be related, I hope, to it, and start with a poem um, by Jane Hirschfield that goes, Perishable, it said, on the plastic container, and below in different ink, the date to be used by, the last teaspoon consumed. I found myself looking now inside the knees, now turning over each foot to look at the sole, then at the leaves of the young tomato plants, and then at the arguing jays, and under the wooden table and lifted stones looking, coffee cups, olives, cheeses, hunger, sorrow, fears. These two would certainly vanish without knowing when perishable, it said. And so this is kind of the predicament we find ourselves in as human beings. We have this magnificent human incarnation in some way, and yet at the same time, it's not terribly reliable. Um, And I was teaching in Paris recently um, for a group of uh, people, many of whom were involved with the mindfulness-based stress reduction movement in France, um, and on a panel with a number of physicians um, who are using this work of mindfulness and trainings and compassion and so forth in their hospitals and clinics. And one of the first people to speak, this physician, who'd been an internist, I think, and then an epidemiologist, he said, you know, let me just give you some statistics so you get an idea. He said, um, 70% of people by age 55 will have one chronic illness. And that could be high blood pressure or diabetes or arthritis or something like that. 90% of people at age 65 will have one chronic illness. And 70% of them will have two chronic illnesses should they reach age 65. He said, and so here I am at this clinic and I'm receiving people 
and we have our best modern medicine to help them deal with their blood pressure or their diabetes or whatever is going on with them. But um, they come in as if their illness was a mistake, that it shouldn't happen, um, or a surprise. And very often, it's not just the illness that we need to talk about, but their life, you know, or their soul. What do I do with the fact that there is aging, or that there's loss, or that there's death? Um, In case you hadn't noticed. And so it's there with us in human incarnation. At the same time, there is unbearable beauty and magnificence. There's also a tentativeness. And so how do we deal with this reality of our human incarnation? Um, From the Buddha, he says, just as a capable physician might cure a patient who is in pain or seriously ill, so also, dear friends, whenever one hears and practices the Dharma, be it through teachings, discourses, explanations, or marvelous trainings of the heart, one's sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair can vanish. Just as if there were a beautiful pond with pleasant shore, its waters being clear, agreeable, cool, transparent, and a person came by scorched and exhausted by the heat of the world, fatigued, parched, thirsty, and would step into the pond, bathe and drink, and all their plight and fatigue and feverishness were allayed. So too, my friends, whenever one hears and practices the teachings, be they discourses or techniques, explanations, or marvelous trainings of the heart, so one's plight, fatigue, and feverish burning of the heart are allayed. And so this is the Buddha speaking as the great physician, if you will, saying that there is a kind of medicine that we need that's not just the medicine of the physical body, although that's important. And in fact, I think it was Sir James Mackenzie in 1886 who took a paper rose under a glass bell and brought it into the room with an asthma patient who was extremely allergic to the scent of roses and opened the glass bell And she went into a full-blown asthma attack, even though it was a paper rose and it had no scent. Um, He was the father of mind-body medicine, basically. There is some connection that you may have noticed. Um, And so this physician was saying, not only do we need the medicine for the body, but we also need the medicine for the heart and the spirit, for how do we handle this incarnation. And this, in a way, is what the Buddha spoke of in the first noble truth, it's called, which is the truth that things are insecure for us all, or unsatisfactory at times, or unstable. Suzuki Roshi's description of all of Buddhist teachings in three words was, not always so. That if you could really understand that. And it's the not seeing of this that makes life so confusing. So you sit and get quiet, and quiet the mind, open the heart, And then you start to to face the mystery of life, which is both the joys that you have, but also the fundamental instability of it. The unfinished business, the tears for losses you've had, the grief, the anticipation, um, the eight worldly winds of praise and blame, 
gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, that keep changing. Disappointment and delight keep changing, and your life keeps changing. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand. You can have your $8 back. Now, the beautiful thing about this teaching is, as my colleague and friend Sylvia Borstein said, when I first heard the, the first noble truth, I was so relieved <clears throat> because I'd been thinking it was my fault and I was doing something wrong. <coughs> and when I heard it spoken so clearly, this is what incarnation is. This is what life is. And I'm not doing something wrong, but instead what happens is we take our seat in the middle of it with eyes clear and with heart open and say, this is what we were born into that's beautiful and at the same time also precious and tender. And it, if we take, it, it brings a kind of courage to us to face life <clears throat> straight up like that. And it also develops a very deep kind of compassion because we see we're all in the same predicament. So the first noble truth is just to see, here we are, and what are we going to do with this beautiful, precious, and tentative life? Which also has a lot of trouble, as Zorba said. Trouble, life is trouble, only death is nice. I think that's how Zorba put it, right? But when you're able to be present for the whole, what Zorba called the whole catastrophe of life, for, for this 10,000 joys and sorrows, there comes then naturally a tenderness, and a compassion for everybody else, you know, that phrase, be kind, because everyone is fighting a great battle in some way. That we see that in one another, and we go, okay, here we are in this magnificent, beautiful, and, and mysterious incarnation. But the good thing is that when you learn not to run away, when you learn not to be afraid of the life that you've been given, or think that it's wrong, that you have pleasure and pain, or gain and loss, that they're actually part of the same thing woven together. When you can open yourself and find a balance in the middle with the eyes open and the heart open, then you see that holding on doesn't work. Otherwise, you just get what's called rope burn, right? It's changing and you're trying to hold on. And it opens to the third noble truth, which is the truth of the end of suffering. It's the the cool pond. That suffering isn't the end of the story, but rather joy, freedom, well-being. And different teachings emphasize different parts of it. At times, you really need to sit in the fire and say, I've been unwilling to look at these things that are difficult and run away or been afraid, and now I'm going to sit with mindfulness and compassion and face the very things of my life or of this world that need to be honored. And so that's a really powerful medicine. And it's not a message you get very much in this culture, but it's liberating. It is also not the end of the story. Because in doing so, in letting yourself go through the difficulty, in training yourself to be present with (coughs) compassion and mindfulness, there comes a kind of goodness that Meng was teaching and well-being. We tend to be loyal to our suffering. We have this negativity bias in psychology. If something's going wrong, that takes a lot more airtime than all the beautiful things that are going on. Um, And the point of spiritual practice in the end is not to be a grim duty, as we've talked about here. 
afternoon. People go to see the Dalai Lama not because he's carrying the weight of Tibet on his shoulders and the, you know, the loss of the monasteries and the culture and all the difficult things of Tibet, which we know about, or that he's a great teacher. But I think people go to hear him laugh because he can carry all that and still he has this tremendous joy. And when we were in Washington, D.C. on these panels for science and mindfulness and stuff, at one point the, one of the um, news stations came up to interview him with the big camera. You know, you're here in Washington, you have this great bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list for, you know, a year or two called The Art of Happiness. Um, you can hear the reporter the way it goes, in, Your Holiness, could you please tell us um, the happiest moment of your life or tell our listeners or one of the happiest, you know? Got a little twinkle in his eye and he said, mm, I think now. You know? <laughs> and he's both playful, but he, there's some way in which when you go and hear him laugh, it's the laugh that says we have a choice. Yes, there's sorrow and suffering that we have to bear. Yes, there's racism and war and continuing environmental destruction. And only if we actually pay attention to it with compassion and care can we make a difference. So we don't turn away from it. But it's not the end of the story. The point isn't to lose yourself in that, but to realize as you quiet the mind and open the heart that you can step out of the struggle with life and instead plant beautiful seeds, use your life and your capacities to both make beauty or goodness in yourself and for others. And it doesn't, it's natural to you, but it doesn't happen also automatically. It grows through your attention and through your care and through your training. And so my teachers, like Deepama, this wonderful Indian yogi, this woman in Calcutta, who lived in a very poor part of Calcutta and was a, quite a strict teacher. You really have to sit and not move and face things and so forth. She was so filled with love that she was a little Bengali woman. And in Bengal, they hug people. It's a really nice thing. You know, it's not like you bow and this kind of polite thing. She would come over and she'd just put her arms around me. And then she would do her loving kindness meditation because she was also a killer yogi. She was one of the great meditation masters. So she had this amazing power of mind. And she would hug and she'd say, you know, I know teaching's hard. And she'd sort of pat me and say, loving kindness. And there's okay that I... And I would just be stoned. I would be like for three days, I'd be grinning like this, you know, just like this love. And okay, I'll practice. Yes, Ma, I'll do it. I'll be good. You know, and I would just be so, because her heart was so big, she'd been through tremendous suffering. And she said, all that's left after that is to love this world, to love oneself, to love the people around, to care for the world. And this is the, the medicine that the Buddha talks about when he says it's cool and refreshing that you actually let yourself face the truth, you find the trainings that can open yourself, quiet the mind, open the heart, center yourself through the changing circumstance of life, and then through this you have the resources of your own well-being and your own compassion to bring to the world. So, a few words as warm-up for, um, for then the first noble truth, this, the third noble truth of the freedom, the end, the second one of not holding on. And the last of the noble truths is the path, is how you practice. So with that. Okay, uh, can everybody hear me? Uh, okay. Are you on? Uh, I, am I on? Yeah. Okay. I, I had to say something about Suzuki Roshi. I, th I think what he said was all of Dharma can be summarized in two words. 
not always so. <laughs> and, and he didn't realize it was very funny because he was thinking in Japanese and translating as he, as he speaks. In, in Japanese, not always so, it's two words. <laughs> so, so. And then people laugh, he was like, why, why so funny? And then he realized it was very funny. <laughs> so uh, my name is Meng, for those of you who came in later. Um, my job title in Google is the Jolly Good Fellow. Uh, and it comes with parentheses, which nobody can deny. <laughs> so you, know, you know the song, right? Uh, yeah. um, so how did I get a job title? Uh, it started as a joke. Right? Like, like most things in my life, it started as a joke. And the joke was, uh, when, when, when I joined Google, it was, I was very early, all the engineers had the same job title. Right? We were all called software engineers. And then later on, we had a career ladder. And the highest ranking software engineer was called the Google Fellow or a Google Fellow. And I made a joke and said, hey, why be a Google Fellow when you can be, I don't know, a jolly good fellow? <laughs> and people laugh. And, and my philosophy is if everybody laughs, it's the right thing to do, right? So I just had it printed on my business card or I, I requested for it. And I put, which nobody can deny because I, I knew they were going to deny this request. Right? And, it, and if they did, I have a joke to tell. So either way, I win, right? <laughs> and, and they being funny themselves, they, did, they didn't deny the request. And then it got stuck. So I'm, I'm stuck with the job title. Um, I also have the, besides the coolest job title in corporate America, I, I also have the coolest job des description. My job description has only seven words. And the seven words are enlightened minds, open hearts, create world peace. So that's, that's my job description. Really cool, right? Yeah. So uh, being an engineer, I'm, I'm very uh, precise and I, I depend on technology. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I, that, was a, that was an accident. So I, I, so, so I, I prepared uh, 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 some effects like, you know, if, if I say something wrong, I go like, you know. <laughs> and then if I, this is very useful, by the way, uh, in a meeting, if you ask anybody any questions, and everybody just keep quiet, and you can you can do this. <laughs> and and every time I see Jack, I'm thinking this. <laughs> if you ever wonder what's so good about a cell a smartphone, right? <laughs> now you know. <laughs> So people ask me if I'm a Buddhist, and I say, uh, on most weekdays, <laughs> I'm a Buddhist on Mondays, <laughs> by Fridays I'm done, I can't do this anymore, <laughs> and Monday I'm Buddhist again, so you call me a good day, thanks, thanks for having me on a Monday, <laughs> not on a Friday, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, when I tell people I'm a Buddhist, people who are knowledgeable about Buddhism, they they ask the next obvious question, right? They want to know which, which branch of Buddhism I belong to. And so they ask, so what type of Buddhist are you? I say, I'm a lousy Buddhist, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you asking me that? I say, no, no, which branch? Oh, oh. So, so for me, I, I think that I benefited from all three branches of Buddhism. Right? So, so for, for me, I benefited from the clarity and the concreteness of Theravada Buddhism. 
Because Theravada Buddhism, oh, by the way, anybody know what, what that means, the word means? Okay, so, so Theravada Buddhism is, is the, the original school of Buddhism, is an older school of Buddhism. And from there I learned, I learned uh, it's, it's a very logical school of, of, of thought. Everything's very systematic. There are, like, there are like seven factors of enlightenment. There are four foundations of, of mindfulness. You know? There are five hindrances. There are five journey factors, blah, blah, blah. Engineers dig their stuff. That's right. Oh my God, I I found it. (laughs) So that's my foundation. Uh, But more concretely, my my foundation is uh, the body of my practice is is Theravada. And the body of my practice is virtue, concentration, and wisdom. And for those who know the Pali, uh, Sila, Samadhi, Panya. The heart of my practice is not that. The heart of my practice is uh, Vajrayana which is Tibetan Buddhism. So Tibetan Buddhism is Buddhism on steroids. Right? <laughs> or for those who are engineers, it's Buddhism plus plus. Right? It's like Buddhism with lots of new features added. <laughs> so the heart of my practice is, is, uh, is also the heart of Tibetan practice, which is uh, emptiness and compassion. And the, the Sanskrit words are sunyata and karuna. But that's not the soul of my practice. The soul of my practice is Zen. And Zen is just being. Right? And just, to just be is simultaneously the most mundane and the most profound and sacred experience at the same time, simultaneously. So, so the soul of my practice is, is just being. It's the happiness of being. So because of that, because I come from all three schools or all three branches of Buddhism. I don't have a name for it. I'm, I'm in all of them and none of them at the same time. And therefore, I call myself a Hahayana Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, Hahayana is the happiness of, of being. <laughs> so, what is the Hahayana path? Right. Oops. Oh, Hahayana path is, is dropping uh, microphones. Please. It turns out that it's just three practice, three steps. It's very easy. Three steps to happiness, or, or in, in, in Jack's words, uh, the relief of suffering. The first step, I tell you what three steps are, and I, t- I tell you some details. The first step is come to calm the mind. The second step is insight into self. And the third step is uh, something I call heart practices. So what are they? The first step, calming the mind. Calming the mind. It's the ability to bring the mind to a state that's calm and clear on demand. Right? That is the, the basic ability. Um, how do you do that? So let me think. Let me see. Uh, so for, let me give you an analogy. No, sorry. Let me give practice and I give you the analogy. The practice is this. The idea is imagine that whatever situation you're in, right? your boss is shouting at you, right? deadlines, and so on, you're in panic, or you're sitting with Jack Confield, and you're sort of like, oh my God, so what? No. <laughs> with a large audience, for example, I don't know how I came up with that example, kind of random. In every situation, you can bring your mind to a state that's calm and clear on demand, just like that. Very useful skill, right? So how do you develop that skill? It turns out it's very easy. It turns out it's something we, we did earlier today, which is to bring attention to the breath. That is all. Every time your attention wanders away, bring it back. 
bring it back. So what is so good about bringing it back? Like what good does it do for anybody? It doesn't make any sense, right? I bring my attention back to my breathing and it's supposed to do something for me. And the answer is very simple. It is like going to the gym, right? And it's like doing bicep curls. If you do a lot of bicep curls, every time you do one of this, the muscles strengthen just a little bit more. And so if you do a lot, you develop a quality called strength. And you, you become capable of doing things that you never could do before. And it's the same with bringing attention back to the breath. Every time you bring attention back, it's like doing one bicep curve for the muscle of attention. And if you do that a lot, the muscle of attention becomes very strong, right? And which is why you're able to bring attention back on demand very quickly. And this is also the secret of concentration. Right? For those of you who are studying for tests, what is the secret of concentration? The secret of concentration is recovery of attention. So what does that mean? Let me give you an analogy. It's like riding a bicycle, right? How do you keep yourself balanced? So every time you are like tending a bit to the right, you come back to the left, right? You recover. Every time you go a little bit here, you come back to the right. So micro-recoveries. Micro-recoveries perform frequently and uh, frequently and consistently and early enough. You create the, you create the effect of continuous balance. And it's the same with concentration. When the mind returns uh, the concentration, every time it wanders away, recover it. If you recover attention quickly and often enough, you create the effect of continuous attention. And that is how you get concentration. Right? So this practice, bring your mind back. The first thing it does is it helps you study. Right? You can get straight A's. Right? But besides helping you study, it does something very important for you. The analogy is this. Analogy is a flagpole. So the flag, the flag is uh, like emotions, like the mind. The wind is like emotions. So the mind is fluttering in the wind. Right? It's fluttering in the context of emotions. And mindfulness of, of this practice of bringing attention back to the mind, or, or to the breath, is like the flagpole. It grounds the mind. In this case, literally. So in every emotionally turbulent situation, you have a grounding for your mind. Very powerful. But, but yet, it gets better than that. You know? You know, it's like, uh, it's like, but wait, there's more. Right? <laughs> and let me give you an analogy of the calm mind. The analogy is this, uh, a snow globe, right? You know what a snow globe is, right? Imagine a snow globe that's constantly agitated like this. And then using the power of attention, your power of mindfulness, you're able to stop agitating the mind. What happens? It is as if you're settling the snow globe. And if you do that, two things happen. The, the, so the snow settles, and then two things happen. The mind, the snow becomes, the, the snow globe becomes calm and clear at the same time. And these are two of the qualities of the mind in that state. When the mind stops being agitated, it becomes calm and clear. And there's a third quality, which is very important, which is not captured by this analogy. And it's a quality of happiness. The mind 
in its calm and clear state is automatically happy, which is very strange. So it makes no sense. Why is the mind in calm and clear state always happy? Turns out it's very simple. And I asked this question to, to uh, Alan Wallace, who's the, who's the expert in, in this practice. And he said, it's very simple. Because happiness is the default state of mind. So all you're doing when the mind is calm and clear is returning the mind to default. There's no magic. And the default state of mind is happiness. And there's even a technical explanation. A technical explanation is this. There's a quality of mind called sukha. And the best definition of sukha that I know of is the most technical definition. So the, the other definitions are is bliss, happiness, ease, joy, and so on. But the best definition that I know of is non-energetic joy. It's a quality of the mind. And since the joy is non-energetic, there are two important facts about it. Factors. The first fact is that because it's non-energetic, it's very subtle. Therefore, it takes a quiet mind to access. Right? The second fact is because it doesn't require energy, it's highly sustainable. Once you are able to quiet the mind and access sukha, you have a highly sustainable source of happiness. And my friends, that is a life-changing insight. Because that suggests that happiness is not something we pursue. Happiness is already there. All we have to do is learn to access it. Happiness is something we access. It's something we allow. And once you understand that, changes everything in life. And this is only the first step. <laughs> Sustainable happiness is only the first step of practice. And it gets better. So step one, calm mind. Calmness of mind, you can uh, uh, deal with every situation. You get straight A's and you're sustainably happy. <laughs> okay, what's step two? Step two, yeah, no problem. <laughs> step two is de developing insight. So the thing about the calm mind, right? Remember the snow globe thing? There are two qualities. One is calmness, the other is clarity. When the mind is calm, coming from the practice of mindfulness, of bringing attention back to the breath, something happens. It's, it becomes clear. And it's clear in a, in a particular way, which is perception. Right? It, the clarity or the quality of perception changes. And it changes in many ways. So one of the, the insignificant, or to me insignificant way, that quality of perception changes is the perception of color changes. Colors become more vibrant. They become more beautiful. And some of you who do retreats might have this experience. Like you sit for a couple of days and you, you get up to walk and everything looks beautiful. Right? All the colors are so beautiful. So that's one of the changes. Something else more important, specifically, it is the, the, the clarity at which you perceive the process of thoughts and emotions. And specifically, it is the resolution. When your mind becomes calm and clear, you begin to be able to perceive thoughts and emotions at a high resolution. What does that mean? When I say resolution, I mean it specifically on two dimensions, a temporal dimension and a spatial dimension. <coughs> temporal dimension means that you become able to perceive emotions in real time, 
as they are occurring. No? Spatial resolution means you become able to perceive small changes in the process of emotion. Combine. What does that mean? Combine, it gives you a couple of important uh, uh, abilities or changes life in important ways. The first thing it does is you begin to be able to perceive an emotion the moment it is arising. And what does that do? What that does for you is because you can perceive emotion the moment it's arising, you can turn it off if you want to. You have choice. You have choice of turning off an emotion. Like not all the time, like some percentage of the time, like half the time, quarter of the time. Imagine how powerful that is. Like half the time, you don't shout your in-laws. <laughs> Changes everything. Like imagine having that ability. That, that ability comes from, you know, using, and where does that ability come from? It comes from mindfulness, right? The quality of mind that is uh, calm and clear, and then using that for self-reflection for looking at the process of thoughts and emotion. So that's the first, the first thing, right? When you're able to perceive process of emotion at high resolution, you begin to be able to, uh, maybe not, not control, but to have choice about emotion. Your choice about whether or not to turn off anger. Sometimes it's a good situation to be angry. It's appropriate, then you become angry. Sometimes it's not, you can turn it off. That's the first thing. Again, that one thing alone changes your life. Right? But wait, it's back, it gets better. <laughs> something else even more important, and this, the next two things go straight to, to something that Jack was talking about, which is suffering, which is uh, resolution of suffering. The first is, it changes the way, we, the way we experience emotion. So, the way we experience emotion right now, uh, for most people, we experience it existentially. And it reflects in the way we use language. For example, we say, I am angry. I am sad. I am you know, happy. No, the emotion is me. Right? And the problem with the emotion being me, since it's me, there's nothing much I can do about it. Right? I'm sorry, I'm screwed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm angry, I'm angry. <laughs> However, if, if, you start, if you start to bring the clarity and sharpness and calmness of attention onto yourself, you might notice a very subtle but very important change in how you frame that, that uh, experience. And here's a change. After a while, you may, you may start thinking of emotion not as an existential process, uh, experience, but as an experiential phenomenon. It's not, it's not who I am. It's something I experience. Right? So it's not I am angry. It's just I'm experiencing this emotion, anger. But it gets better. As you continue on the practice and as you continue looking inward into the process of emotion, there's a very important, very subtle but very important change, which is you, might, you may discover that emotion is largely a physiological experience. It's, a, it's experience in the body. Why is that important? It's important because of this. If, if, I, if I were like walking around, talking, talking like, oh, and, and like I hit my hand on this table, I go like, ah, right? I feel pain, physical pain. And I know 
that this experience of pain is a physiological experience. It's an experience in my body. It's not me. It's just a bodily experience. So because it's a bodily experience, there are things I can do about this. I can take Tylenol. Right? <laughs> I can ice it. Right? I can ignore it. I can distract by eating ice cream. Right? Or I can experience it mindfully, the way Jack would have you do. Right? <laughs> and so the reason I have choice is because this experience is physiological. It's not ex existential. And so once you begin to perceive the process or the experience of emotion as a physiological phenomenon, then this sadness, this depression, this happiness is on the same level as this pain in my hand. They're both physiological experiences. And because they're both not me, I have power over them. And this insight begins mastery over, over emotion. Very powerful. Changes your life. So those are the two. Oh, shall I go for one more? How much time do I have? Go ahead. Okay. You're on a roll. Keep going. <laughs> uh, uh, how many of you are, are like meditators, by the way? Okay, good. Then I go to the, the third one. Uh, it gets even more important than what I just said. As, as your practice matures, as you begin to see the process of thoughts and emotions with clarity, something else happens. Very profound. And you develop insight. And maybe I should do this. I should, I'm going to say this as a suggestion. Right? I just suggest to you, and you either verify or falsify it as, as in your meditation. But I'm going to suggest this. I'm going to suggest that self is not an object. Self is a process. And the self is a process that's generated by mind. The mind continuously regenerates the sense of self in response to thoughts and stimulus and sensual stimulus. Therefore, if there's a state of mind that is so calm and the resolution of perception so clear that you can see a self not arising, you can see a, the self the moment is arising and the moment is not and moment is, is ceasing. Then you start to perceive no self. In other words, Kensho or enlightenment with a small e. So that one practice alone, bringing attention to your breath, such a simple thing, brings you all the way from getting straight A's in school to enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good deal, right? <laughs> so that's the power. But wait, there's more. <laughs> which goes to the third step, or the third step of, of practice, which is uh, what I call nourishing the heart. Uh, and these are the Brahma Viharas, right? or the, the, the supreme abodes, uh, which are loving kindness, compassion, uh, appreciative joy, which means appreciating when other people are happy, and equanimity. Right? Like the four uh, emotional uh, emotional mastery, emotional goodness. How do you develop those, those things? Turns out, again, it's very simple. It turns out that the way to develop the Brahma Viharas is simply to create mental habits. So what's a mental habit? I'll give you two examples. One example is the mental habit of looking at a random human being, any human being in the world. You look at a person, and the first thought is, I wish for this person to be happy. 
That's it. Shall we try that out? For 10 seconds, don't have to say anything, don't have to do anything. Just look at, don't have to look, by the way, if you don't want to. Yeah? Just or look or imagine. Look at any human being, two human beings, or imagine two human beings in this room or outside the room, and just think to yourself, I wish for that person to be happy. Okay, 10 seconds, beginning now. Time's up. How was that experience? Everybody is smiling, right? <laughs> it's a very joyful experience, which at first is a bit surprising, right? The, the experience of wishing for another person to be happy, to be on the giving end of loving kindness is by itself intrinsically a rewarding experience, which suggests something, which suggests that loving kindness is by itself, uh, what's the word, infinite source of happiness sustainable source of happiness. Again, that one practice alone creates happiness. So if you do nothing else, if, you, if, if breathing is too hard for you, <laughs> try this practice, right? Randomly look at people once an hour and randomly think, I wish for this person to be happy. <coughs> so how do you create this mental habit? Like all other habits, it's something if you do a lot of it, it becomes, it becomes there, it becomes a habit. So to create this habit, uh, one way to do it, the informal ways, every hour, walk out of your office and look at two people and say, I wish for this person to be happy. That's all. And if you do that often enough, it becomes habitual, instinctive, effortless. Or there are uh, formalized ways that, that Jack teaches. It's called Meta Bhavana, right, which some of you have done before. So, so that's one example of, of a mental habit. Oh, by the way, this is very useful. Uh, not just for happiness, not just to create a better world. But imagine going to any meeting room. Right? You walk into a meeting room, you look at everybody in the meeting, and your first thought is, I wish all these people to be happy. Changes everything. Changes the tone of the meeting. Everybody wants to help you. They like you. Right? And it, it's all unconscious. I mean, they, you look at them, you say, I wish for this person to be happy. It reflects in your body language. And it's picked up unconsciously. And the person likes you, and you do, doesn't know why. He thinks he, because you're very good looking. <laughs> this is why people think I'm good. <laughs> and you get, you get stuff done, right? Because people want to work with you, right? So it also brings about success. So that's one mental habit. Another mental habit is the habit of, of our goodness, seeing goodness. And the exercise we did earlier today, that is a practice for, for that habit. And that habit, again, is very useful in, in many ways. One of the ways is if you have to deal with a difficult person. Imagine dealing with some, a difficult person, and then if you do that practice a lot, you think, even that guy, even Ming has a little goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and me, that's the first thought, right? The first thought is even that guy has a little bit of goodness. And if you think that way, it changes how you act, right? And that again changes everything at work. So those are uh, my three practices. Right. And for those of you who recognizes the, 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 the Sanskrit words or the Pali words, they are Shamatha, Vipassana, and Brahma Vihara. Right. Or to just repeat again, uh, calming your mind, creating insight into yourself, and then nourishing the heart. Uh, let me say a bit about, about emotional intelligence. So I've been doing this at Google. And 
when I wanted to create, oh, maybe I tell you the story of why I created this course, and then I tell you how this feeds into emotional intelligence, into search inside yourself. Search inside yourself started with a very simple dream, and that dream is world peace, right? I do you remember the time in your life where you figured out what you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Right? I mean, I remember that time, that that day, that exact moment. It was in 2003, I was taking a walk and there was a moment where I suddenly told myself, I, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life, I want to create the conditions for world peace. That's what I want to do. Yeah. When I grow up. <laughs> 2003. And, and that festered in my mind for a very long time. And, and then in 05, the, the seeds that was planted in 03 started started sprouting and I started thinking seriously how do I do this and I figured I figured something out I figured out the way to create the conditions for world peace is inner peace inner happiness and compassion on a global scale like if these three qualities are global then we have the conditions for world peace but how do I do that how do I create the conditions for these three qualities and I figured that out I figured out the way to do that is if these three qualities are help people succeed at work, it helps companies earn money, then it's going to spread worldwide. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, and in Buddhism, we call this upaya, skillful means. Right? Help, helping people where they want to be helped and then with goodness and world peace being the necessary and unavoidable side effect. So that's what I'm going to do. How do I do that? And then I figured it out. I figured out the, the secret is emotional intelligence. Because everybody already knows EI is good for my career. Every company knows if all my employees have emotional intelligence, I'm, this company is going to earn a lot of money. Right? Yet, people do not know how to develop emotional intelligence. And it turns out that we, we do know. Because EI is essentially Dharma. Right? The three steps I've been talking about, that's essentially the training for emotional intelligence. There are two aspects of EI. The first aspect is something called intrapersonal intelligence, which is intelligence about yourself. about So self-awareness, knowing my emotions, Knowing, but not just my emotions, knowing who I am, knowing what my strengths are, my weaknesses are, my resources, and so on. Uh, second part is of intrapersonal intelligence is self-regulation, knowing how to master over myself. And the third part is uh, motivation, like finding my inner deepest resources and motivations, and then using that to help me succeed. And the, for intrapersonal intelligence, the two aspects are empathy, which is knowing other people, and social skills, being able to work with other people. And you superimpose what I just said, the three steps. You find there's a fit, right? Calming the mind is the foundation of emotional intelligence. It is the, it's the foundation of all higher emotional and cognitive skills. So that's building the foundation. Uh, insight into self, that is intrapersonal intelligence. And uh, the Brahma Viharas, nourishing the heart, that is 
uh, social skills, empathy and social skills. So once I figured all that out, all we had to do was to repackage it. I mean, reframe it, yeah. right? Uh, add in the science. The science is important. Add in the neuroscience. So don't just say meditate. Say when you do this, you know, the prefrontal cortex changes and, and amygdala is changed, blah, blah, and so on and so forth. It's, you have to be backed by the science. If, you, if you're not backed by science, your engineers will walk out of the room. <laughs> so that's one. And then we added also the business applications. So we don't just teach, for example, Meta Bhavana. I, I, tell, I tell them, no, once you learn this skill, you go walk in the meeting room, everything changes. And people say, yeah, that makes sense. Right? Then they're motivated to learn it. So, so I just reframe it, use language that even I understand. <laughs> because if I understand the language, everybody else understands. And I add in the science and add in the, uh, the business aspects of it. And that's it. And we have searched inside yourself. So that's how it all started. <laughs> and I think that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Just great. Thank you, May. And um, Thank you. So, yeah, some comments and maybe some questions and thoughts. Um, one of the things that happens is as you talk about it, and something that I know as well, mm -hmm. is that when you talk about the development of these qualities in a yes. kind of systematic way, which is elegant and beautiful and there in the Eightfold Path and so forth, it seems like it's linear in some way. All right, you need to <clears throat> get your uh, integrity lined up because it's hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It doesn't work very well. So you sort of have to be nice to people. Rules out the lawyers then. That's right. And then, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, you know, and then you have to find a way to quiet your mind and you can see clearly and act in a, in a way that's more beneficial for yourself and others. Um, at the same time, the culmination of what you talked about, those Brahma Viharas, which are the awakened heart, of loving kindness and compassion and so forth, for a lot of people, they're actually needed at the beginning. And you know this very well, that there's some way in which when people sit and they try to bring their attention to their breath, when you do or to your body, um, all kinds of other stuff comes up. One of the most common is a lot of self-judgment or criticism or striving or unworthiness. Um, and as I've talked about here in many times that we had this meeting with the Dalai Lama 20, 20, 25 years ago in the late 80s and as a group of teachers and said, you know, do you have any recommendations for the self-hatred that people encounter or the inner criticism and, and so forth? And he said, self-hatred? What is that? And, you know, talked to his translator, Tupin Jimpa. He couldn't understand. It took about 10 minutes and back and forth in Tibetan. <laughs> And self-hatred, why, you know, and then finally he looked up and he said, but this is a mistake. <laughs> why would you do this? Um, and then he asked him, you know, all there is, here is an abbot of Zen center and all these teachers and so forth. Have you experienced this? And, you know, like all the hands went up um, because it's so common in our culture. So that in some way, um, and you know this, I know you do, but it's, it's sort of just saying something that feels very important that as you begin the practice, it's really circular. It doesn't start in some place and then you get to another. But in fact, those very qualities that you were just describing of seeing the goodness in yourself or of, of, of looking at your experience with holding yourself with compassion or loving kindness mm. um, is often critical at the beginning. Mm. 
And then in those trainings, which you described of uh, turning your attention toward wishing um, happiness for another person or for yourself, often people find it hard to do it for themselves, as you know. Um, I'll ask you a question about it in a minute. But um, so I found myself reversing the traditional way the teachings are, uh, are offered or presented and not having people start with themselves. Um, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, think of the place where it's easiest for you to love because that opens the channel. Some people say, my dog, you know, <laughs> you know, my dog loves me unconditionally. And I said, that's a fine place, you know, to start with uh, your dog or whatever. Um, but then start with people that you love where it's not very complicated and see this person and that person in your mind's eye, in your heart, picture them and feel how much you want them to be happy or you're well wishing for them. You might also become aware of um, the struggles they have in their life, those people you care about. And immediately there comes an upwelling of compassion. Oh, I really care about this person and they have a certain measure of sorrows or pain and you feel a tenderness. And when you feel that open for people that are so natural to you to love, because they're people you're open to, then you can pause and turn it backward and say, well, what would they wish for you? If you can look in through their eyes of these people that you care about so much and imagine them looking back at you, what would they wish? And they would wish that you would be happy in a very deep way. They would feel compassion for the struggles that you have or the suffering that you do. And so sometimes it's, it's actually an easier thing to take it in and believe it somehow, because it comes in that image from somebody else that cares about you. And so I, I'm just thinking about how you've been really involved in making skillful means that will work in the corporate world or that will work with engineers, which is really, it's, it's fun and it's creative. Um, how do we have to turn it so that we can use these practices in this culture in a way that people don't use them to judge themselves? And do you find, that's my question, if you find at Google or in, in Search Inside Yourself, that people also take these and somehow, because they're very ambitious people there, they're mm -hmm. very smart and they're very ambitious, and you can use that ambition to judge yourself or mm -hmm. to feel, what, do you, what have you noticed about all that? Hmm. The, the first interesting thing is, is that I'm, I'm from Asia, mm -hmm. in, in case that's not obvious. <laughs> <laughs> And, and there's interesting... India? No. <laughs> Not this lifetime. <laughs> there's something interesting about the difference between uh, Eastern and Western cultures is that I, I find, and some of you may or may not agree, is that Eastern cultures are shame cultures and Western cultures are guilt cultures. Mm. So your people get, feel guilty and my people feel shameful. Mm. <laughs> and so maybe that's, that's why we sort of perceive it slightly different way. Mm, in a different way, yeah. So, which is why for me, I do understand the idea of self-hatred, but, uh, and I, I sort of indulge in it every now and then, but it's not, it's not something that is uh, instinctive for me, to put it that way. I, I, I'm more instinctive to shame than to guilt. So, so, so that is my first uh, difficulty in understanding this. My experience teaching, teaching this in Google is I don't actually see a lot of self self-directed uh, hatred. And it's not entirely clear to me why. Uh, my, 
theory is because this course is advertised as an emotional intelligence course and it's about success. Uh, and, and therefore, it, because the way it's framed, it, it's, it, people, it takes on a slightly different track. Hmm. Yeah. So that, that could be it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I see it frequently on retreats, and maybe it's the way that it's framed, or hmm. just people taking spiritual practice and using it in the same way that we use, um, you know, some task that we have. How am I doing? How, how do I look, as hmm. you say, for shame? How do I look outside? Hmm. But inside, you know, how I'm, I'm measuring myself and am I improving? Am I getting better? I'm not good at this. I tried this for a little bit. And if you have a, if you start with very much idealism about how you're supposed to be, mm -hmm. that's very different than mindfulness. Mindfulness mm -hmm. is actually gracious and um, open and acknowledging this is the way things are. And so you notice, all right, today the mind is not very quiet and it's agitated. Mm -hmm. That moment of noticing is a moment of liberation. Mm -hmm. This is the way that it is. And by noticing it, it's like seeing that all the stuff in the snow globe, yes. um, you make the space around it. And if you instruct people to bring in the quality of compassion from the very beginning and say, all right, what you do, listen to the tone of voice. Mm. It says, ah, this is a busy mind. This is, I'm not doing this well. That's the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. I appreciate that. You know without trying to say, I shouldn't judge, or I should stop doing that. Mm. You're just acknowledging the experience. Um, and if you remind people to do it with a kind heart, as yes. you were talking about, somehow that allows things that, as you said, the calming and the settling and the clarity to take place. So it's somehow the wedding you ended up when you talk about Vajrayana and somehow the wedding of emptiness and, yes. and compassion, that somehow they, it seems like they need to be there from the very beginning. Which reminds me of something very important, mm. uh, which is at the beginning of, of Search Inside Yourself, uh, what I tell the students is in doing this meditation, bring your attention back to the mind, uh, to the breath, there is no way to do this wrong. Mm. Right? And that is actually a very important point. Why is there no way to do this wrong? Right? It's like, again, doing bicep curse. Right? It's like the, the growth comes from facing resistance. Right? It's, it's from this. The resisting and then relax and resist relax so overcoming resistance is growth and in in bringing attention back to the breath is the same the growth comes from bringing back every time your mind wanders away you bring it back it's like doing this is that this is where you're growing therefore and therefore we cannot do this wrong because every time you're wandering away you bring it back you're growing Right? And, and we, when you do bicep curse, we never say, oh, I'm doing it right, I'm doing it wrong, I'm doing it right, I'm doing it wrong. Right? It's absurd, right? <laughs> and so once people figure it out, there's no way to do this wrong. I think most of the judgment goes away. I mean, it's a self-judgment. Hmm. So Sylvia Borstein, who you might know, who teaches mm -hmm. here, um, she was going to go on a retreat um, at Zen Center some years ago. And she needed to arrange it with Paul with this person who was the retreat guest master or something like that. And she called and he wasn't around, so she left a message for him. And then he called her back, but she wasn't around. And she thought, well, maybe it's not supposed to happen. And then she called again to try and reach him. And um, uh, she said, may I please speak to the guest master, Paul? And they said, he's not here. And she said, well, maybe that's a sign. Maybe it means um, um, I shouldn't go 
And the person on the other said, no, it just means he's not here right now. <laughs> and it was a lovely damn answer. But there's something, I mean, you're saying it too. There's something really beautiful about the clarity of mindfulness of not doing it wrong. People come and say, this and this is happening, and am I doing it wrong? And in fact, as long as you can say, this is what's happening, you are in the present, and you are learning how to be gracious with it. And I remember years ago, I was leading a three-month retreat, three-month silent retreat. We have a two-month silent retreat here in the winter, and three-month retreat in, in Massachusetts for people who want to do this long, deep training. And somebody came to me, and they said, you know, there's a few friends of mine who are sitting. Some of you have heard this story. And I want to know how they're doing. You know, Sally had been, you know, working on staff here, and now she's going through a hard time. How's she doing? I said, well, she went through some rough patches, but she's doing good. You know, well, how is, um, how is Peter doing? Yeah, yeah, he went through some things. He's doing pretty good, too. And how is Maria doing? Oh, she's having a really good retreat. And by the time it was done, I, they'd asked about four people. And I said, they're, they're doing good. And the person looked at me and said, well, when you say somebody's doing good, what does that mean, actually? What is that? And I had to reflect because it was just sort of an automatic description. I thought about it. I said, it means they haven't left yet, you know, <laughs> because as just as you're saying, it's, it's not, not actually the experience that you're having that defines the wisdom or the compassion or the loving kindness, these beautiful qualities, but it's the fact and the capacity that you have that's growing to stay present, be in the present moment and stay present for your life. And so the resistance sometimes is more important than anything else. Mm-hmm. So next time you can't remember the name of that movie or, or you know, you want to figure out how to get somewhere and you go online and you go to Google, you can think of all those engineers there who are breathing in goodness and then sending it out to the, you know, 3.5 billion Google users of that day. So let's sit for just a minute to close the evening. I, oh, can I, before we do that, can I say thank you all for being here and attention and thank you for inviting me. Oh, man, thank you. It's really a pleasure. So interesting and sweet and, 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 and beautiful teaching. So let's just sit for a minute and practice for one minute, coming back to the present moment with your breath or as you breathe, feeling the sense of goodness or wishing um, happiness for someone, loving kindness. And if any of the words or practices, teachings tonight have touched 
the seeds of goodness or understanding or inspired you in any way, um, know that those seeds have already been in you um, and take whatever is of benefit or blessing and let it be nurturing to you um, and let it uh, carry forth and bloom in you as you go from here out into the week and to the wilds of the world ahead.